It was August 2016 when I arrived back to the United States from a long stay home in Jordan. The 16-hour flight takes a toll, and waiting in immigration fills me with anxiety. As I rightfully cross into the line for US citizens, I should feel like I've arrived at my second home. But upon placing my passport in the automated customs and immigration machine, a paper spits my face back out with an X marked over it, questioning. For the third time in a row, I would be taken to a separate neon-lit room with Formica desks and wooden officers and questioned. Why was I here? What's my birthday? What's my mother's maiden name? Why was I in Jordan? Why has it been so long since I've returned? This I expected, but for the first time in August 2016, I was asked to provide something new, my social media handles. And why not, I thought. I was, after all traveling while Arab. In 2017, a bright young Jordanian by the name of Yahya Abdurrahman was gifted a round-trip ticket to Chicago to celebrate his recent graduation. Armed only with a smile and a valid tourist visa, Today we hear his unfortunate story of being singled out, wrongfully accused and detained, and sent back after a taxing ordeal that plagues him until today. We'll also discuss the legalities and blurred lines of thinly veiled profiling methods practiced unchecked by Customs Border Protection Officers with civil rights lawyer and immigration specialist, his lawyer, Christina Abraham. My name is Yahya Abu Rahman. I'm a Jordanian citizen. Uh, graduated from University of Jordan in 2017, majoring uh, Spanish and English literature. I arrived to Chicago O'Hare Airport. I was waiting in the line. I was chosen from the whole line. I approached to the CBB officers, Customs and Border Protection Officer. I was holding a Jordanian passport, but he saw that I was born in Syria. At that time, it was at three days after the uh, executive order for President Donald Trump banning seven countries from entering the United States of America. The ban that Yahya mentions is none other than Executive Order 13769, titled Protecting the Nation from Foreign Terrorist Entry into the United States, or, as it's more commonly known, the Muslim ban. The order effectively banned granting non-diplomatic visas to seven predominantly Muslim countries under the guise of terrorism prevention, Syria included. They asked me to take my phone, my personal phone. So I asked why, what's the reason? They said, well, we have the right to search anyone who looks suspicious to us. He opened my email. He read most of the emails. He opened Facebook, Facebook messages, WhatsApp, even pictures, private pictures. They also searched all these pictures. It was at that moment that Yahya's luck may have taken a turn for the worse. Access to his personal information, freely offered by Yahya, allowed an unobjective view into his personal life without context. Yahya's emails to and from aviation schools in Europe and Canada pushed the CBP officer to probe further, resulting in questionable conduct and a lower standard of dignity professionally expected by a border officer. They said, okay, you have two brothers here in the States. Both of them are married. I said, okay, yes, that's true. He said, are you here to get married? Don't you think that... Both brothers are here, and they both studied in the States, and they got married. Isn't that 
somehow relative or maybe it's a plan that you all do. I said, not at all. What my brothers have done has nothing to do with me. He said, well, you're still Arab. This runs in the family. Don't you agree that your life in the States would be much better than uh, in Jordan? I was asked to take off my shoes. Later on, they took my luggage, my phone, everything. They put me in a cell, locked up cell. There were no seats. There were only mattresses. I was not even allowed to do my prayers in a proper place because the, the bathroom was open. People were walking actually bare feet to the toilet and then coming back. I cannot pray there. I said, okay, can I make a phone call? I need to call my embassy to know what was going on. He said, if you sign your this visa withdrawal application, you will be able to call the embassy. You will be able to call your family or relative or whatever you want. And you can apply again at the American embassy in Jordan. If you don't sign this application, we will ban you from entering the United States for the rest of your life. It was at this point during Yahya's story that I felt compelled to speak to a professional to better understand the legalities of what had just happened. It seemed that a plethora of indignities befell Yahya within a short amount of time that should have surely allowed the opportunity for some sort of rebuttal. Christina Abraham, an immigration and civil rights lawyer, caught wind of Yahya's detention through his family waiting on the other side and jumped in to help. So CBP has a lot of authority uh, because they're, it's like kind of a no man's land or a, or a gray area in terms of jurisdiction and sovereignty and territory. So they're supposed to guard the gates. They're at the border. And everybody outside the gates is technically not, if you're not a U.S. citizen or a green card holder, you're not subject to the privileges and the rights that are enshrined in the Constitution. So somebody like uh, Yahya, who's trying to come in as a, a tourist, not a green card holder, not a citizen, not somebody with like legal immigrant status in this country, doesn't have constitutional rights. So he doesn't have a right to an attorney and they, they can reject him. They can send him back. It seems that even without constitutional rights or any form of recourse, the twisting of Yahya's arm to sign a document before contact with a lawyer or his embassy seemed heavy-handed. The CBP pledges to publicly treat each traveler with dignity and respect, but the lack of sanitary praying conditions and stereotypical assumptions that Arabs generally have plans to overstay their visa or marry to inherit citizenship shows otherwise. They also specifically pledge not to discriminate against race or ethnicities, but to judge each individual on their own merit, save for cases of potential terrorist threat. It's doubtful that Yahya fulfilled that criteria in order to be singled out, but that's precisely the issue. What is the criteria? They want the officers and the agents at the border to have that discretion. You're not going to find parameters for what constitutes threatening social media activity as opposed to not. It's very vague and vacuous. Literally, it depends on the person who's reading and going through your phone, how they view your social media activity. On May 30th, 2019, it became a requirement that all visa applicants attach any and all social media handles within the past five years to their applications. And while you can still pick none as an option, this will undoubtedly result in complications and delays down the line. 
Visitors from the so-called friendly visa waiver countries are requested to adhere, but not mandated. Immigration applications, a lot of them ask for social media handles and information so that they can check on you. And if you refuse to provide them, they say, well, this can cause a delay or denial. It's not necessarily going to, but it puts that out there that, hey, if you don't share this information with us, you might not get the benefit that you're seeking. And that that puts pressure on people to comply. The lack of transparency and muddled judging criteria results in arbitrary decisions and refusals particularly when a person's social media is suddenly being scrutinized by socially and culturally inept individuals with no contextual background of the detainee's life and networks. Can you imagine just randomly going through somebody? You don't know that person. Everything that you're reading could be out of context. You don't know what the relationships are with the people that are communicating with them. They could be random. They could be strangers to them. I mean, it's social media. It's a free-for-all a lot of times. And so, yeah, a lot of things get taken out of context. It happens all the time. I've had stories of people who get placed in deportation proceedings because when they were trying to come back into the country, you know, CBP would go through their phone and then find incriminating evidence against them and then deport them. These are people with legal status in the country. While the average person may not feel the urge to delve into the need for a clear legal definition of the word privacy in order to protect it, some professionals with access to more sensitive information have begun practices that to some may seem paranoid, or overly cautious, when they may in fact become a necessity. Setting up two-factor authentication, traveling with a dumb phone and no laptop, even allowing a lawyer to set up a new password without your knowledge in order to be the sole person who has access to it are all acceptable practices to reduce the chances of an invasion of digital privacy when crossing the border. However, there is a chance that sooner or later, even these practices will not be enough to protect you from prying governmental agencies. Congress is currently entertaining the Earned Bill, which would forever change privacy as we know it. Recently, Republican lawmakers introduced a bill in the House that would ban end-to-end encryption for um, media apps. It would mean creating a backdoor for the government and any other potential hacker, by the way, uh, so that they can come in and surveil anybody that they want, anybody's social media activity. And so you're seeing lawmakers move towards this greater authority. They want greater power to be able to check and see what people are talking about and saying online. While Yahya may have had an inkling that most of the information the CBP officer was asking for was available at the touch of a button, perhaps he couldn't quite grasp the vastness of metadata and knowledge already stored. So I said I was clearly identifying and explaining several times I was Jordanian. I'm holding a Jordanian passport and they have a database where they can find any information about me. They could have communicated with uh, Jordanian armed forces to identify if I was holding any other nationality. Yahya was right. They could have, and they probably did. Before the harrowing events that shook the United States on September 11th and changed worldwide travel as we know it, Applying for a visa to the United States was a fairly painless experience. The main concern of a visa screening was to determine if an individual was going to overstay their welcome, not terrorist vetting. If your name wasn't one of a handful of names that popped up on the state terrorism database tip-off, chances are you were good to go. 
the predecessor to the Department of Homeland Security, the Immigration and Naturalization Services were limited to an average of 45 seconds of interview to determine the eligibility of an interviewee. These agencies just assumed that counterterrorism was the domain of the FBI, or CIA. Furthermore, the collection of biometric data was only mandated upon people denied entry at the border, unlike the vigorous data collection routines they practice today. Since most everything was on paper, they couldn't even access a person's photograph at a moment's notice. 9-11 changed everything. The immediate aftermath of the chaos ensured the total reformation of data collection and vetting standards. Visa applications now demanded in-person interviews. The creation of the National Counterterrorism Center ensured cross-department information sharing and funneled information into a new standard named the Terrorist Screening Database. On September 11th, TIP-OFF contained 60,000 names. As of 2016, the TSDB now contained 1 million. There now exists the implementation of the Consular Lookout and Support System, CLASS, an online database that includes more than 35 million people whom have been denied visas, criminal records, and other disparaging information, social media included. In 2010, the Department of Homeland Security agreed to collectively share the biometric data of any visa applications within the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom, nefariously known as the Five I Nations. The fact that Yahya had previously successfully filed for a US visa meant that he had already jumped through the hoops to verify who he was. He was just turned back upon arrival. Back after 9-11, there was some litigation about this, um, about what customs had the right to do, what they had the right to search and what they didn't. And there was a lot of leeway that was afforded to them by the courts at that time. And what we see is those little tiny holes that were opened for them, they just get made bigger and bigger and bigger as time goes on. And depending on the administration in power and what their interests and objectives are, uh, as is this, this administration's objective is to completely shut down immigration, in my opinion. For Yahya, the long-lasting effects of his ordeal shadows him wherever he travels. And while emotionally and psychologically trying, one can quietly bear the flippant profiling to a certain extent until it starts to threaten their livelihood in unrelated areas. After his return to Jordan, he learned that this arbitrary decision not to allow him to enter the United States would now dash his hopes of studying in Canada. Since 2017, I was so terrified to even apply for any embassy in the world because I was constantly imagining that I will be rejected, refused from all countries, simply because the States, the United States, they rejected my visa. They did not admit me in Chicago. I received an offer from flying school in Moncton, in New Brunswick, and I applied. All my papers were great. Everything was green. They rejected my application. And when I went to figure out what was the reason of the rejection, they told me your previous travel experience they said, well, United States, they rejected you, so we're rejecting the same. Yahya represents just one of thousands of lawful individuals who are wrongfully turned away from the U.S. borders each year, whose visas are rescinded although they had paid their dues unknowingly by voluntarily adding themselves to a system and database that was created to stack the odds against them, simply by applying, being on social media, being born and raised in a certain country, or their own citizenship. 
if I had any problem, I could have deleted or at least sign off, sign out from any any suspecting uh, media or social media application. This could have all have stopped if I maybe logged out out of the emails and then Facebook and then all these uh, social media accounts, and they could have never found anything. But found what? I had nothing on my phone. Like, why would I suspect or why would I be afraid to give them my phone? Those countries, let's say Middle East, are willing to overstay in the states because they think that everyone has this idea that America is the land of. Um, freedom, it's the land of opportunities. They think that we actually live in hell when we are in Jordan, or that we're suffering from hunger or suffering from sicknesses or diseases in the country. But I, I think a lot of things should be changed. A lot of things should be changed about the way how they look at people who are coming from Middle Eastern countries. I'm Tamar Arghur, and this is Traveling While Arab. Next time on Traveling While Arab. If it's in Arabic, you'd have a tough time identifying something as Muslim or Christian. And it all comes back then to what's your last name and how do you look? When I got to the hotel, I felt disappointment and violated. What made me pissed off is not that he asked me these questions. It's just, you know, whether if my name was John Smith, would he ask me the same question?